ABC Hello Life Group. Um, this is a life group, but I am not live there. Yes, I regret to tell you, Becky and I are officially in quarantine. That means that I can't be there without running the risk of getting y'all sick, which we would never want to do. So I've prepared class. I want to teach class. These are important things for me to share with you. So please don't flee. And if you're watching on the internet, it doesn't matter because you're watching me on the internet anyway. But if you could be there, that would be extremely helpful, even though everybody's keeping socially distant. So please be careful with each other. This is uh, not always a life and death matter, but it can be. And so we want to show that measure of respect. Well, Thanksgiving's right around the corner, and it's got me thinking about my kids. And one of my kids in particular is my daughter, Sarah. Now, Sarah is, is fun because I've always been able to figure out what she's thinking. Not I say that. I mean, I'm sure I can't many times, but, but it's written on her face, and you can just kind of tell. And I told her one time, I said, honey, I, I, I know what you're thinking. She's the old dad, you know. I said, easiest way to show you that is rock, paper, scissors. And so we played rock, paper, scissors. And then, you know, you either do a rock or you do the scissors or you do the paper. And rock crushes scissors, but scissors cut paper and paper covers rock. I'm sure you've got the game down. So we played like 12, 13, 14 times in a row. I beat her explaining I knew what she was going to do. I, it's just she was at an age and at a station in life where I could figure out what she was thinking pretty, pretty easily. Now, let me give you another example of how something we do exhibits who we are. I used to love to play chess. I played professional chess for quite a while. And I love to play it, and it was interesting to play chess because in chess, you, you start out with what's called the opening, and those are the earliest moves where you kind of set up what uh, uh, way you want the game to go. You can play very careful and conservative. You can play very um, solid and traditional. You can also play very daring and, and you know, with gambits and things like that. Um, I love to play those daring gambits. And you could look at a chess game and see how that chess game reflected kind of my personality at the time. Now I was, I was uh, out there and I just thought, you know, let's go for it. And let's really try to win this thing and try to win it big and, and in a beautiful fashion with artistic flair. And, and that's just the way I was. And these two examples I bring to mind to introduce this lesson, which is another lesson in the way that God's law, which God gave at Sinai, reflects his character. It reflects his ethics. We can look at it and figure out some of the things that are the thoughts of God. We can look at it and we can uh, figure out what he values and how he uh, uh, has set up this world for us to live. And so that's what we've been doing. And we're at a segment of looking at the Old Testament law where we look specifically at the Ten Commandments. We've got two left that we need to cover. 
The first one is found in Exodus 20, verse 16, and it's very simple. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then the second one that we've still left undone is the final commandment, number 10. And it says, you shall not covet, and then it goes on and on and on with all these different things you're not supposed to covet. And I'd like to look at these two commandments one at a time. But with each commandment, there's kind of a three-step process I want to do. I want to look at the commandment on face value. Just what does it say? And then I want to see how that commandment reflects upon God. And then the third thing that I want to do is apply the commandment. And we'll do that each time. So let's take the first commandment. The first commandment is, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, if we put that up here and look at the Hebrew for a moment, because we want to see this at face value, it's not hard to get there. Let me break down the Hebrew for you a little bit. It starts out, lo ta'aneh, uh, and, and lo ta'aneh uh, means don't answer. Lo, the first word, remember Hebrew, you're reading right to left. The first word, lo. Anytime you see lo in Hebrew, it means no or not or the negative. Ta'aneh means to answer. So don't you answer. Okay? Don't answer. And then here's the next word. Bereka. Bereka is, you can break that down at your companion or against your companion or something, that first letter, the B sound, ba, means in or, or against or at or with or any number of different things. But here, it's don't answer against your um, ra'ah ka, the, the re'ah is, is a companion and the ka means yours. So don't answer at your companion. Now, I'm not saying that the original translations we get in our Bible is wrong. I'm giving you some alternate meanings for these words to further flavor what it is. So don't answer at your companion. Ed, which is the next word, testimony or witness or what you have to say. And then it ends with shaker. Shaker means false. So what this is saying, don't answer at your companion testimony that's false. Let me put it into Lubbockese. Very simple. This is it. Whole commandment wrapped up, translated into two words. Don't lie. When you talk to your neighbor, when you talk to your companion, when you talk to your friend, don't answer them with something that's false. Tell the truth. Now, you and I are, are looking at this on the internet or we're listening to this at church. And in some ways, we may feel like at this moment, we're caught up in the message and life is simple. But life is not simple. Life is difficult for people, sometimes more so than others. And like a maze, life has these choices we've got to make. And we've got to try to figure out how to escape from, the, or how to end the maze successfully. We want to live a good life. We don't want to just go to a dead end. We don't want to go somewhere that's not profitable, that's not good. And so, for me, this commandment, on its face value, 
is something that's giving me direction in the maze. It's telling me that the best route is always going to be the honest route. The best decisions that I can make are decisions that are rooted in being honest and forthright, not lying. And so within the framework of that, I'm delighted to get this on face value. The face value means a lot to me, and it makes it a lot easier for me to live. But I want to go a step further, because as a commandment of God, this isn't only an instruction for me, it's also a reflection of God. So God himself is being reflected in the value of us living righteously where we tell the truth. You know, one of my favorite passages of scripture is Psalm 17, 15. Look what it says. I shall behold your face, or I shall see, same word, I shall see your face, the face of God, in righteousness. Now, this has got a lot of meaning, and this is very significant for me. Look at this. First of all, it's the whole principle we've been saying. The law of God reflects the face of God. We see in the law, in righteousness, in what is right before God, we see who God is. We see his character. We see his ethics. We see his concerns. That's what we see. And so the idea, I shall behold your face in righteousness, is a recognition that God is reflected, the presence, the, the face of God, the, 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 all that that means, the idea of, of, of God's awareness of, of what we're aware of, all of that is found in righteousness. But it's got another meaning as well. It means when I make the righteous choices, when I walk in righteousness, I better behold my God because that's where he dwells. That's who he is. So for me, this passage is one that reflects truly the face of God. And as you see the righteousness that comes from being honest and forthright and telling the truth, you're actually seeing God. And so the reason why? Pretty simple. God is truthful. That's just the bottom line. So we're not to be liars because God is not a liar. We are to be truthful because God is truthful. God made us in his image. That means we're both hardwired for his morality and also we are called upon to reflect his morality into the world, to be a mirror, if you will. In that sense, we bear his image. We reflect him to the world. So God is truthful. You get that throughout scripture. You know many of these scriptures, but let's look at them closely together. Let's start with a number of them that are in John. John 1.14. Now John had started within the beginning was the word and the, the word was with God and the word was God. It's clear John is calling the word Jesus. He says, and the word became 
flesh, Jesus, God incarnate, and dwelt or pitched his tent, tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. There it is. Truth. We see the glory of God. This is like Psalm 17, 15. In righteousness, we behold the face of God. We have seen the glory of the only Son from the Father who is full of truth. Truth in that Hebrew sense, but also in that Greek sense. So that word has got a fullness of meaning. It means Jesus is real. It means Jesus is authentic. It means Jesus is reliable. It means what Jesus says is accurate. And so we've got this presence in Jesus that we read about in Scripture, that John wrote about having experienced it and seen it visually himself. We've got a chance to see God as expressed in human form. And one of the core traits of God, then, is truth. In that regard, look at another passage out of John. In John 8, Jesus is talking. He's talking to a number of different people, and he says that you will know the truth, the authentic, the real, the accurate and what is authentic and what is real and what is accurate will set you free. A lot of people don't live in truth. A lot of people just sit down and dwell in the midst of something that's less than authentic. A lot of people do this in their minds. They live in a fantasy land in their mind where they check out of reality and pretend to be something they're not or pretend to have something they're not or any number of different things in that regard. And, and Jesus says, no, if you want to be free, if you want the liberty and the experience of being um, uh, all that you can be and being authentic, then it will come from knowing the truth. Now that word know, gnosko in the Greek, uh, that word know means to be intimately involved, to, to be intimate with. It can reference sexual union. It is an intimacy. You will be one with the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, some of the people Jesus was talking to, they weren't interested in authenticity and the truth. And here's the interesting part. Jesus shows the contrast, the negative. He says, but you are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. And he was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. I mean, he began his work on earth with us humans lying to Eve. bringing death to humanity. 
When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. What we need to see here is the other side of this coin. When God speaks, he is the truth, and he speaks out of his own character because God is truth and the father of truth. The devil, the adversary, the enemy is the father of lies. God is the father of truth. Lies are the character of the enemy. Truth is the character of the father. See, so this, when we begin to understand this, we begin to understand God doesn't say tell the truth just because it's convenient, just because it's easy, just because uh, he decided, hey, that's the way we'll roll this existence in the universe. No, God is saying that is my character. And I've set this universe up to where it works when you walk in my character. So let's take another passage here. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he tells them, this is where, where the, Jesus is talking, I'm going away and where I'm going, you can't come, but I'm going to come back. I'm going to prepare a place for you. He's talking about going to the cross. And that prepares the, the way for us into to his father's house with many mansions. And, and they said, well, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way. I'm the truth and I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is profound. Jesus is saying, I'm reality. I'm reliable. I'm accurate. I'm honest. I am all of the things that you can build your house on. That's who I am. That's part and partial with Jesus being the life as opposed to this devil who's full of lies and death. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. Let's take another one, another passage in the same spirit time where Jesus is talking to his apostles. It's a couple of chapters later, but it's the whole same speech. The speech is in an in, in interchange dialogue is chapters 14, 15, and 16. In 1633, Jesus has told them the Holy Spirit's going to come. Jesus is going to send the Holy Spirit. But he calls him the Spirit of Truth who will come and guide the, the apostles into all truth. By the way, this is a fundamental reason that the church chose as the canon of Scripture by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit those writings that were either by the apostles or anointed by the apostles in a sense. You know, like Mark recorded Peter's gospel. When the Spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into the truth. We can rely upon the Bible because the Bible is the product of the Spirit of truth. It's accurate. It's reliable. It's authentic. But what's more is as Jesus and the Holy Spirit that he sent is the truth, we are brought to grow up into that. That's part of who we are to be. We are to be truthful people. Here's another one. Jesus has now been arrested and he's in front of Pilate. And Pilate says to Jesus, are you a king? Now, how's Jesus going to answer that? Paul says, I mean, you can read ahead. But how are you going to answer that? Jesus is the king of kings. So he's certainly a king. He is the king. But not in the sense of Pilate thinking, 
oh, does he have a little kingdom here where he set himself up against the Roman Empire? In that sense, Jesus is no mere earthly monarch. So Jesus replies and says, well, you say, I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. I'm here for the authentic reality of what truly is. You know, we live in an age where people are really trying to figure out what's real and what is authentic. Uh, we live in an age where people think, surely it can't be true that there's a God after all. I don't see him. And we live in an age where a lot of people are limited in what they'll believe by what they personally experience in the little gray cells we call a brain. The idea that there's this immortal, transcendent, imminent, all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful being doesn't really fit into our brains too well. And so we have a tendency not to believe it, but then we're sitting here struggling, then why is this world the way it is? Why do I have this inner desire to do right? This frustration when I don't. Why do I cry unfair when something unfair happens? Like, is life supposed to be fair? Do I care about fairness? There, all of these questions are wrapped up in a worldview that decides what's real and what's not. And Jesus said he came for this purpose to bear witness to what really is true what really is real. There really is a God, hence he came to earth to show us. He really cares about us, hence he lived his life to serve and to ransom us from the death that really does await us if we're not made alive in Christ. That's the truth. And we may live in a world where the truth is cloaked from our eyes. We may live in a world of deception where the devil, the father of lies, out of his own character, has deceived us into thinking this world's about material things only. This world's about uh, what you got or what you can get or what you eat or what you can, can buy. How you can feel. But that's not truth. That's not a true perspective on this world. And everyone who is of the truth will listen to Jesus for what's real. Because that's who he is. He's true. And so within the framework of that, I think this recollection of truth here becomes a reflection of God. God is, we, we are to live without lying because God himself is true. So the application becomes very simple for me. I want to pledge myself to truthfulness. I want to be honest. I want that to be my ethics. I want honesty and integrity to be what people see in me and what they know me to be. Jesus told the Father in his prayer, this is called a high priestly prayer. It's in John 17. It's, it's called that because Jesus is praying interceding for his people. He's praying for you and me. 
I mean, in that prayer, he says, I'm not only praying for the apostles here, but I'm praying for all the people who will believe because of the apostles' ministry and work. That's you and me. Jesus prayed for you. And he prayed, sanctify them. In other words, make them more holy, make them more godly, make them better in the truth. Jesus prayed that you and I would grow in the truth. To, we would grow in reality. That we would grow in, in authenticity. That we would grow in reliability as we do that. So this is my navigation principle. I've got a friend who is a lawyer. He's not practicing anymore, but he used to have a plaque up on his wall and said, when in doubt, tell the truth. Pretty good advice, but <laughs> tell it when you're not in doubt too. Just tell the truth. You know, I, I, I love this saying, do what is right, not what is easy. Now you may be saying, um, if I'm honest with myself, and by the way, that's sometimes where we tell our biggest lies. There's a reason step one of every 12-step program is a recognition that I've got a problem. Because we tend to lie to ourselves more than anybody. So we got to go about growing, rehabilitating ourselves. And God does that. That's what Jesus was praying when he said, sanctify them in the truth. He's praying, rehabilitate them. Take that Pinocchio nose and start letting it fly away. Let's be honest with ourselves. Let's be honest with our families. Let's be honest with our friends. And remember, in righteousness, we'll behold the face of God. So that's that commandment. Now, we've got a little bit of time. I want to do the next commandment. You shall not covet. This is our final commandment. This is the 10th. And again, I want to do the same thing that we were doing before. I want to look at this in three different lights. Let's begin by looking first at the face value of this. Just put it under the microscope and see what we see. And then we'll look at how it's a reflection of God, and that will enable us to better apply it to ourselves. All right? Let's begin. We ought to start by looking at the word covet. The word covet is hamed in the Hebrew, hamed. It's got a ch -ch -ch sound, hamed. Hamed in the Hebrew is a word that's translated covet. Now, if you look it up in a Hebrew dictionary, you're going to see they define it as to, to desire or to take pleasure in. So hamed, we hamed something when we see it as pleasurable or, or when we, we take pleasure in it, when we desire in it. And there's a really interesting story where Hamed is used in the, the Old Testament. The story is found in the creation accounts and the Eden accounts, Genesis 2-9 and Genesis 3-6. I want you to look at it because it's really interesting what it's got to say. Remember, we're not supposed to covet. We're not supposed to covet. 
We're not supposed to desire or take pleasure in whatever it is that falls. And we'll get back to that in a moment. But look first at these two passages. Here's Genesis 2.9. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, Hamed is in this passage. The word translated covet in the Ten Commandments is in this passage. Let me show you where it is. The Lord God made us bring up every tree that is Hamed to the sight. Every tree that you might desire or take pleasure in. That was good for food. So the God, the Lord God, he made every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. There are trees there that Adam and Eve would see and take delight in and appropriately want and appropriately enjoy. Good for food. Good to look upon. Those trees were in the garden. And they had the full run of it. Now, the tree of life was also in the garden. And also in the garden was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So in a sense, you've got three groups of trees here. You've got those trees that they can rightfully desire, want, take pleasure in to see and to eat. And then there is a tree of life. And there is a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God instructs them, you don't eat of this tree of knowledge of good and evil. So that's what we've got in Genesis 2.9. Come in. The word is here. Let me give you the rest of the story as we get to Genesis 3. The serpent has come and he's tempted Eve. So when the woman saw that the tree, he's talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it and gave it to Adam. Hamed is in this verse too. Covet. It's right here. She saw the tree was one she coveted. She wanted. She desired. She wanted to experience so that she could be wise. And she took it and ate it. Now, this is interesting, because here we see Hamed is something that's good. There are things that we should want and delight and take pleasure in, and Hamed is also something we should not. And the commandment doesn't say, thou shalt not Hamed, period. doesn't say you shouldn't enjoy things, want things, take pleasure in things. That's why I have the dot, dot, dot here. Because what the commandment says is, I'm not supposed to covet my neighbor's house. I'm not supposed to covet my neighbor's wife. I'm not supposed to covet my neighbor's servants. I'm not supposed to covet his ox, his donkey, or anything that's his. I am not to live my life desiring what someone else has. I am not to live my life where 
I am seeking to take pleasure in something someone else is doing, something else they've got, their life, what God has for them. I'm supposed to live my life, face value here, for what God has for me. And if there's something that, that would be uh, um, out of bounds for me, I don't need to dwell on it in here any more than I need to act on it in here, if that makes any sense at all. So if that's it at face value, don't covet those things. But now let's look at it a little more carefully and let's see how this is a reflection of God. God himself delights in some things, whereas he doesn't delight in other things. God recognizes some things are good and worthy to be desired. We should chamed some things. We should take pleasure in some things. But there are other things that are out of bounds, that are not fruitful, that we should not take pleasure in, that we should not desire, that we should run from. These are reflections of the character of God. God himself delights. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save, for he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God enjoys his children who walk in righteousness, who are exhibiting, who are fulfilling their role. God doesn't rejoice when his children are frittering away the opportunities he's given them, the things he's entrusted into their care. Think back about the parable Jesus told of the talents. Uh, talent not being gifts, but talents was money back at the day that Jesus gave the parable. So one fellow got a little bit of money, one fellow got a medium amount, and one got a whole lot. And those folks that had the money, some of them invested it and did wisely with it. Some of them didn't. One fellow didn't. He, he just kind of buried it in the backyard and didn't worry about it. And Jesus came back uh, or, or at the end of the story and explained that, that the master was not happy with the servant who didn't treat his talents properly. And Jesus took the money from him and gave it to somebody who put it to good use or had the master do it. Because that's the way God is. God, God is someone who, who sees in us and gives us opportunities and gives us potential and gives us resources to use for him. And when we do that, even though we're not perfect at it and we blub up all the time, but when we're giving it a good effort and prayerfully seeking by the grace of God to do the best we can, God delights in that. But when we just live without care or regard and fritter it away, he doesn't. See, love and hate, we often think of as two choices, opposites 
So many people think that Christianity should be all about love and not hate. But that's not fair, and that's not biblical. God who says, don't chamed uh, certain things, but it's okay to chamed other things. Don't desire certain things, but you can desire other things. That God recognizes because he himself is one who both loves and hates. It's just a question of which it is, what you're doing. This is why Paul wrote what he wrote in Romans chapter 12. Paul said in verse 9, let love be genuine. Look at that. Let love be genuine, be real, be authentic. Abhor or hate what is evil. Hold fast of what is good. See, hate and love coexist within God's morality. God loves what is good. God holds fast and loves what is good, but hates, abhors what is evil. So if you look at it this way, and you see that this is a little bit of the reflection of God. God is someone who has things that it's good to delight in, it's good to take pleasure in, it's good to desire. And then there are things that it's not good to desire, that we should not be taking pleasure in. And so how do we apply this to ourselves? Well, this isn't hard. I want to take pleasure in what's right before God and nowhere else. That's my desire. If I can take pleasure in what's right before God and nowhere else, my life will be transformed and so will yours. So this is an interesting idea. I want you to think about it for just a moment. We're almost done, but, but hang with me for just a minute here because so many of these commandments meld together. They're all part of the face of God, of who God is. God has put a lot of things in our lives that in the right place are to be enjoyed. There are experiences that belong in my marriage to Becky that are to be enjoyed within that marriage, but not outside the marriage. There are experiences with food that it's good to enjoy, but only when it's done right and carefully, not into gluttony. There are so many aspects of this life that if we enjoy them within the will of God and how God set them in front of us, we can rightly take pleasure, we can rightly enjoy them, and life is full and abundant. But, when we chamed them, when we want them outside of those boundaries, when we cross from the trees that God made for us to eat and begin to chamed and want the tree he didn't make us to eat, then we're bringing death upon us. So those are the Ten Commandments. And if you've, not, if you've missed some of those, uh, they're all on the internet. You can go back and look at them or look on our website, biblical-literacy.org, and they're there. But we're not through with the law. The law contains so much more than simply the Ten Commandments. And so we've got more we've got to look at. 
But right now, I want to pause and say, these commandments, when we see them as a reflection of the character of God, they all mesh themselves finely together. Take just for an example what we looked at today. We are to enjoy the things that God gives us to enjoy and not desire the things that are outside of what God gave us. That works hand in hand with we are to be truthful and honest and authentic in what we say and in what we do. And where we fall short on all of these commandments, this is not God's got you under his thumb and God's going to destroy your life. There will be negative consequences to sin. Don't get me wrong. Paul says, don't ever be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever you sow, that also shall you reap. Paul said that to the Galatians, and it's true for all time. But there still is forgiveness with God. And God is the ultimate at going green. By that I mean he can take all of your garbage and recycle it into something that can make your life rich before him. So anytime we study these passages, we need to remember these in light of Jesus and what John said in that 114 passage I looked at before, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the Father, full of grace and truth. So in Christ, we've got truth. We don't run from it. We don't change it but we also have grace. We also have that perfect marriage of mercy and justice. And so I don't want this to be discouraging, but I do want this to be not only a life lesson, but a heightened understanding of who God is. Because as we grow in righteousness, we see the face of God. So with that, let me bless you in Jesus' name, and by God's grace and mercy, hopefully, next Sunday I'll be back live and we'll continue. Um, so have a great Thanksgiving, but here's your, your closing blessing, and I'm going to, to take it from the ironic blessing that Jesus actually, or not Jesus, God actually wrote. This is the only blessing in the Bible that says, God says, these are my words. I'm giving you this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. His face, what we see in righteousness, may it shine upon you. May his righteousness shine upon you and may it overwhelm you with his love and mercy and may you reflect the face of God, the righteousness of God to the world around you. So with that, God bless you. It's time to go to church. Um, I'll be doing it on the internet. You'll be doing it live if you can. Um, and I'll see you next Sunday.